What we're doing today is having an emphasis on church planting. Uh, Normally, we go through the book of Matthew. We've been doing that for a couple of years now. And last week, we took a break and talked about international missions, talked about our missions team that went overseas. Today, we're talking about church planting. And then back next week, we'll be back in um, Matthew. So we'll be starting Matthew chapter 24 next week, and we will one day be done with Matthew. So um, today, we're talking about church planting. And so... um, just a kind of a, a little bit of background real fast before we go in. And then uh, if you want to go ahead and flip, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20 today. And then we'll go over, like I said, next week to Matthew. But today we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Um, Remedy Church, us, we, we are a church plan ourselves. We're only four years old. We, uh, we started at uh, the Baptist building, which is over on Oakland Avenue about four years ago. After about nine months, we moved into this building. We've been here for around three years-ish, maybe a little bit more. Um, and so... Since we're a church plant, we, we really believe in church planting. We want to be a church that plants other churches as well. Um, and so we want you to be a big part of church planting as well. And so they asked us, Acts 29 asked us to write and do a church planting Sunday where we would take up an offering at the end of the service um, for church planting specific. We, we support three church plants, and so we'll give uh, 90% of that money to those three particular church plants that we support, and then the other 10% will go to Acts 29. We'll do that at the end of the service today. Um, and if you didn't come prepared for that, you can still do that online. Um, but anyway, um, they asked us to do that. And so as I'm trying to think, because I've never preached a sermon on how to church plant or what church planting is about. And so I'm trying to write it all week. And this is a difficult thing for me because all I kept uh, coming up with is how to plant a church. And, and I'm thinking most of you may not ever plant a church. And so <clears throat> I didn't want to speak to just like one person and the rest of you be like, great, how to plant a church. Start with a bank account, become a nonprofit. Like this doesn't apply to me at all. I'm, I'm a part of a church. I'm never going to plant one fun. So I thought that it might be helpful instead of um, answering how to plant a church, which is applicable to a, to a narrow bit, is to broaden it out and just try to answer the question, why plant churches? And so I think most of you might want to have that answered. And I think that why we plant churches um, in the text we're going to be looking at, hopefully why we plant churches and with looking at the text we're going to look at will help us all as believers in Christ be excited about church planting, but also want to fulfill the things that God's calls, called us to as Christians and see the value in church planting. So um, that's, that's kind of where we're going today if you're kind of wanting to know how how are we going to talk about church planning? I'm, I don't want to plant a church. Well, we're part of one, and we want to do more. And so that's, that's kind of where we're going today. Now, last thing, and then I'm going to pray. Um, today is May the 5th. It has nothing to, this has nothing to do with sermons. But today's May the 5th, better known as Cinco de Mayo, where in America we observe the Mexican heritage. It's not um, Mexican uh, like our July 4th Independence Day, which is in September. It's just the day we celebrate. This is all Wikipedia, by the way. Um, Celebrate Mexican heritage. Um, Yesterday was May the 4th, and so that's Star Wars Day. So it's May the 4th be with you. So you probably heard that if you follow any social media. And and I just think, how ridiculous are we getting? Like, we're we're naming every day. Who knows what tomorrow is or next year what they'll name May the 6th. They'll have some days. But it just seems like, honestly, you stop and you say, what's going on in America? Every day is going to have a day soon. Like, every day is going to be named something like National Muffin Day or, you know, Wall Day or something. So anyway, um, my point is, we're getting ridiculous in America, and we really do need Jesus in America that we're just naming days haphazardly all over the place. Um, Maybe not haphazardly. Cinco de Mayo seems important. But may the fourth be with you seems kind of, I don't know. So anyway, let me pray, and we're going to jump into Acts chapter 20. Um, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would, you would really help me right now focus my mind into the text. And we know that your word is powerful and is mighty, and um, you've chosen within your sovereign will to, to use broken vessels to preach your word. Really, we are absolutely dependent upon you for anything to happen here. You are not fretting up in heaven, dependent upon a preacher to do anything. But you you have said that um, we are to be completely dependent upon you for anything to happen. And so I pray that you would come now and my attempt to to speak your word would be coupled with the Holy Spirit and and driven by the Holy Spirit. And that you would come now and, and move our hearts to to know Christ, to see and understand the gospel of Jesus, what he's done for us um, by, by going to the cross for us, and that we would be moved with motivation 
to want to live our lives for the glory of Christ. Um, as we talk about church planting, Lord, I pray that you would open up our minds and hearts to be receptive to the idea of church planting and what, what it can do um, in, in a particular city or in um, this, this country and really all over the world. We love you, God, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, question one, which I get quite often as a church planter, and when I start talking about church planting, um, question one is usually, why do, we, why do we need more church more churches in Rock Hill? We've got plenty of churches. Or why does any city, really, in America need more church? What's the point of planting more churches? We've got plenty of churches. Why can't people just go to those particular churches if they want to go? Um, it's a really good question. We shouldn't kind of slough that off and say that's not a good question. It's actually a really good question. Um, so let, let me try to uh, answer by, by saying, uh, yes, we still need, I'm, I'm going to use the term existing churches, which just basically means they're not a church plant. They, they're a little older than four years. Maybe they're 20 years. Maybe they're, maybe they're 50, 100 years old. And they, at least in, in their worship style, would be on the more traditional side. You have to be a little bit more dressed up and, and things like that. That's good. I'm not saying that's bad. Um, so people say, why do we need more church plants? Why can't people just go there? Well, let's just Kind of look at Rock Hill and let's answer that question. You could actually take this, this answer and just put it in any particular city, but I'm just going to use Rock Hill because we live here. So um, there's about 75,000 people here in Rock Hill, roughly. Um, and, and if we're honest, I mean, if we're just honest on a good day, about half, if we're on a good day, half of those people probably go to church. Now, go to church does not mean that they're strong believers, okay? We just mean that they go to church, all right? Which means 35 to 40,000 people are not going to church, and we could presumably say, not walking with Christ. If every single one of them decided on a Saturday, I'm going to go to church tomorrow, every church in the city of Rock Hill would not be ready, nor could we hold them. Like, if everybody started going to church, we would not be able to hold 40,000 people in our churches. We just don't have enough room and space and, and all that kind of stuff, which means, yes, we do need more church plants. That's the only way... You might say, well, that's not going to happen, Fudd. That doesn't mean that that's not our goal. We should never, ever stop driving towards every single person in our entire city meeting Jesus and being actively involved in a community of faith for the gospel. That's our goal. So we want, yes, more churches in Rock Hill. We don't want more churches that look just like us. Um, Maybe there needs to be more, but we want churches that are all over the map when it comes to... um, Worship styles, dress styles. We want them all to, the main thing is that they all need to believe the gospel of Christ. And if that's the case, then we do need more churches that are more traditional. We need more churches that are more contemporary. We need more churches that might have certain theological bends. Because if all 40,000 people went to church, they're also going to want tons of different worship styles. They're not all going to want a pastor that wears jeans and, and, a, and a guy that plays a guitar. Half of them would probably want to go to the organ style hymn and more dressed up. And so that means we need more thriving, existing, or traditional church plants as well. So when, we, when we're arguing here for church plants, I, I want us to kind of take the step back and not think that we're saying, when I say arguing, I mean this in a, in a good sense, not like, you know, whiny, cranny babies. Um, when we say we're arguing for more church plants, we don't necessarily mean churches just like us. We mean churches that believe and trust the gospel and are very diverse when it comes to worship styles, um, even uh, ethnic diversity or... Even some theological things, you know, we, we are re- reformed and love the, doct- love the word. And, and I mean, we, we, we're this way because these are the way we think it's right, right? But it's okay for people that don't necessarily want to be that way or want to have more traditional worship, etc. So when, when we're saying, um, why do we need more church plants? Uh, realize that, I mean, we, we do need more church plants in, in Rock Hill. We need a lot more church plants in Rock Hill, actually, um, because... Everybody in the city is not a thriving member of the community of Christ yet. And we're going to need a whole lot more if everybody decided to be. A whole lot more. Which is why you hear me say, week in, week out, we're not in competition with other churches. If, if the win is our church is big, then we don't care about church planning. If the win is our scorecard shows, we want the city to meet Jesus. 
So that means we want every church thriving and more church plants. And so we want to send out church planters from here to plant somewhere in Rock Hill because we need tons of churches, tons of churches in this city if we're going to actually reach every single person in the city. That's the goal. It's okay if we grow, but that's not the goal, the end goal. The end goal is that all the people in the city meet Christ. So um, there's a lot of reasons I can give, I think, to talk about why church planning. Let, let me read a couple reasons, but I think I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to appeal to you with a different style. But let me give you just a couple reasons why I think church planning is absolutely essential, especially in the 21st century, 20, 2013, in America. Um, Ed Stetzer, he is a, uh, a church planting guru. He, uh, he used to be a professor at a seminary, and he left and works for Lifeway now. You know where Lifeway, they sell the books. They also have all kinds of things that they do. Lifeway is like the Baptist Mafia. They own everything. Um, So Ed Stetzer is a church planning strategist, kind of like the Pope and Baptist world of planning church plannings and strategies and stuff like that. And so he writes, I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot of books when it comes to church planning and does a ton of research in church planning and figuring out if they're, if they're being efficient, if churches are being efficient, and why even have church planning. He's written tons. But in one of his books called Viral Churches, um, he said basically that church planting now has proven to be the most effective way in 2013 to do evangelism. It's, it's proven to be the most effective way to do evangelism is through church planting. This is what he says. Fifty years ago, if someone wanted to do evangelism, the most effective way to do it is, if they feel like they need a better job of sharing the gospel, is that a church would call a traveling evangelist to come to their come to their church. They would do what's a week known as revival. And maybe you don't know what that is. I grew up with that. You know, we had a revival and the guy would preach every single night. We'd get there at 7 p.m. And every night we'd get worked up. Lots of people get saved. And then we'd give an offering to the guy at the very end of the week if he did a good job and then send him out. So that was kind of the idea. But that was actually really effective 50 years ago. You would just have a revival or maybe Billy Graham came to the city and, you know, 80,000 people got saved that weekend. And that was, that was the way it happened. But that's shifted to not be effective anymore. Revivals and Billy Graham crusades in America aren't the most effective way to do evangelism. But what's been proven now is that church planting has actually become the most effective way to see people meet Christ. And he gives a statistic here. He says, among established existing churches, this is the you know, 20, 30, 50, um, 100 years old churches, right now, per 100 members, they're averaging about 3.4 baptisms. But in new churches or church plants per 100 members, they're averaging about 11.7 baptisms. Baptisms generally mean salvation. So if existing church plants are having about 3.4 baptisms per 100 people per year, and new church plants are having 11, the difference is 8 salvations per 100 people per church, you can see that new church plants um, are the, the best strategy in the 21st century now to do evangelism. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just kind of take the old, the old church plants and say, just want y'all to die so we can buy your buildings whenever y'all shut down. That's, I mean, that's not likely. We still want them to be revitalized and grow and their pastors to love the gospel and them to become on mission and be really excited about reaching tons of people that would be excited about coming to a traditional church. So we want them to grow, to grow and thrive as, as well. But Stetzer says this, the launching of more new churches will lead more people to Christ. More churches, new churches, lead people to Christ. And some of it's just the necessity of like needing people. If, if this, this new church is going to actually not die, I need people to be here. I don't want to take people from other churches. So I'm just going to go out and tell people about Jesus. They'll get saved and then I'll have people here. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the angst you feel when you first start a church. It's like there are no people here. And if I want my kids to eat, I need people here. So I got to go tell people about Christ so the kids can eat. I mean, we want people to meet Jesus and, and go to heaven, you know, but I really want them to eat too. So that's kind of the, the weird, weird, weird way you feel in that first year or so. And so Stetzer writes this. And now he's writing with a guy named Warren. So you'll hear the, the we, the plural first person. He says, we are absolutely convinced that a huge influx of new churches is absolutely required in this country. We believe church planting is the best way to take the church to the people it needs to serve. We believe new churches or church plants are the best platform for followers of Jesus to live as salt and light and be doers of good deeds in their community and to demonstrate the love of God in practical ways and to intentionally make more disciples of Christ. 
So in the 21st century, church planting is the best way to do evangelism. And this is what, what the uh, statistics basically have bore out for us, is that a new church will see more converts in the first year than it will in the second, generally. And then a new church will see more converts in the second year than they will in the third, and on and on. So basically, the, the most salvations that a church will see is in its first five years. And there'll be more salvations in the first five years than in the second five years. And then more salvations in the second five years than in the third. Now, it's not saying, it's not saying that there aren't anomalies. There are some churches that have been around for like 75 years and tons of people, God just comes in there and people are getting saved all over the place. But statistically, more people get saved in the first five years in a church's beginning than in the... So that means the smart thing is, if we, if we start a church then its first five years, there should be a lot of people meeting Jesus. And that's why he says this straightforward sentence, the launching of more new churches will lead more people to Christ because they just have more salvation in their first five years than their second five, and on and on and on. Um, and of course, there are exceptions, but the rule, the, the biggest um, way it happens is that um, at the older you get, it tends to be the less salvation you see. Now, we, we don't want that to be the case for us. We want to keep pushing in ministry and keep pushing and seeing it. Um, so that could be the way I could appeal to us all, but I still don't know that that's the, that's the personal level for a congregation to say, church planning, I'm all, on, I'm all in, FUD. And so I want to appeal to you this way. And I think this is maybe the best way to appeal to us all, to get us all excited about church planning is this, because we want to plant churches that will in turn plant churches that will in turn Plant churches, the multiplication model. Um, this is the route I want to go, and I think this is the best route. This city, Rock Hill, has people in it. I think that's all that, that I need to say. There's people here. People that are made in the image of God, that have dreams and hopes and aspirations, just like you, that God loves dearly, that he made in his image. They're just like us. And they just don't know Christ. And God wants us to care for them and love them deeply. There are people that live right next door to you or a couple houses down from you that are lost, that Jesus loves dearly, that he made in his image. There are people that live in your dorm room right down the hallway that are lost, that you, you pass in the hallway and maybe even say hello. There are people that you work with that, they drive you crazy because they are so lost. But God made them in their, in, in their image. There are at least 40,000 people in Rock Hill and in greater, greater York County, if we conclude all the other cities in York County. There are just people all around you that are just lost as they can be. They don't know Christ. And so the, the way I want to appeal to you in thinking, if church planning is the best way to do evangelism, and I want to do evangelism because there are people around me that I'm genuinely actually supposed to care about and love, then I want to be excited about church planning because I want them to come to know Christ. Because if they don't, they will, spend, they will, they will be born, they will live, they might be happy, they might be not. It will be temporal. It will be a Christless joy that will not really be joy, but just be happy, ups and downs. When they die, they will spend eternity separated from Christ and live in hell forever being punished. And there's something inside of us that just has to say, that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable to me. I know it's up to God, but I will do everything I can to see that they come to know Christ. The results are up to the Lord, but at the end of my life, I don't want to have said, well, I didn't do anything. Hopefully they'll just get saved. I don't think we can do that. And so the reason why I think we can all be excited about church planting, because it is one of the most effective evangelism tools, is because there are people around you that you know, and perhaps even your family members, that it breaks your heart and soul when you know that they don't know Christ. That's why you should be excited about church planting. Because here's the thing, perhaps their church hasn't even been planted yet. If they got saved, there's not a church here that they would go to. And their church hasn't been planted yet. And we want it desperately to be planted. 
Because if they were there, they could rise up in leadership and more people could, would meet Jesus and come to know Christ in that church. And we desperately want that. So, because if every person went to church, we couldn't hold them. And if every person um, went to church, all the churches in Rock Hill couldn't hold them. There are two things, and really only two things, that we can do. The first is that we can revitalize existing churches. And the second thing is that we can plant new churches. And since this is church planting Sunday, not revitalization of existing church plants or churches Sunday, I'm going to talk about the second one. And I'm fully, fully for the first one, okay? I'm fully for it. But, you know, Chandler told me to talk about church planting, not revitalizing. So I'm for revitalization. All right, let's keep going. Um, We deeply love people. Now, what I want to do is I want to read a verse in Romans chapter 9 and let it kind of be our diving board into Acts 20. So, um, being that I think the reason why uh, that we should care about church planting is because people all around us, people that God loves that are made in his image, that we should love, need to meet Christ. I want to read a verse where Paul uses this same kind of argument and talks about the deep love he has for people. And then we're going to use Paul's example in Acts 20 um, as a conversation he has with people in Ephesus. So, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. This is Paul. Now, in this text, Paul is speaking in a hypothetical. This is not actually possible. But what he's doing is he's speaking in a hypothetical, trying to make the point that um, I would go to absolute great measures to have people meet Jesus because I love them so much. The measures are impossible. But he's just trying to use this grand hypothetical to help us see, wow, Paul really loves these people. So this is what he says in Romans 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness to me in the Holy Spirit. In other words, I am, we say this, I'm telling the truth. Like, I mean this. This is what he says. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is how he feels about the people that are around him that don't know Christ. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I'm, I could wish, that's why I have us the hypothetical. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, Paul saying, he's an Israelite. And I love the people of Israel so much that if it were hypothetically possible, I could even wish that I, I care about them so deeply. I would go to the greatest measure to be cut off from Christ and accursed if it meant that all of my brothers would actually be able to go to heaven. He's saying, I would go to hell for my community to meet Christ. That's how much I love them. Now, it's a hypothetical. It's, it's completely impossible. But what he's trying to amplify is his deep love for them. And I'm just saying, do we love the people around us that, that deeply? You can't go to hell that they can go to heaven. But certainly we can see what he's trying to say. I will go to great measures around me because I love the people around me so much that they'll meet Christ. I'm so deeply burdened for them that I'll do whatever I can within biblical means that they would come to know Christ. Charles Spurgeon um, was commenting on the feeling that we should feel when we think about people coming to know Christ or not coming to know Christ. He says this, It is true that a fisherman may fish and never catch any fish at all. Ah, but he's not much of a fisherman. You know where he's going, right? Because we're fishermen. men. And so if there were no souls saved when I preach that I might find some way of satisfying my conscience, I just don't know what it is yet. And I just want to say, listen, this is Charles Spurgeon talking about preaching, but it is absolutely no different for us who are all called to be fishers of men. Do you feel this same way about lost people not being saved around you? If there was some way just to satisfy my soul and be okay with lost people not going around, not coming to know Christ, I just don't know what it is. Or are you just settled in and completely satisfied with never catching any fish and it doesn't even bother you anymore? We can't be satisfied with it. We have to have this burden, this deep love of people that Paul is espousing in Romans 9. We have to have it, especially here in America, because there is a greater number 
intent, growing and growing and growing, that we're becoming a, a much more um, non-Christian nation, more and more secular. We have to be far more intentional about making disciples. <clears throat> and so I want to look at the life of Paul. Clearly he has a deep love and a burden and a love of people that um, this is the kind of way he lived his life. He was so burdened that he lived his life very different. Very, very different. So what I want to do here is go over to Acts chapter 20 and we're going to look at a conversation that Paul's going to have with people. Now, just a little background on Paul, just in case you don't know much about Paul. Paul was what's known as a frontier church planner, meaning um, he would go to the cities where no one knew Christ at all, and he would go there, and he couldn't just kind of go to the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem and kick the pastor out and say, I'm the pastor here now, because there was no First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. There were no Christians there. So he just went there and just started telling people about Jesus. Go to the synagogue, tell the Jewish people about Christ, go on the, on the streets and tell the Gentiles. He would just tell whoever he can, and he would get a good little collection of, of misfits that didn't know Christ or didn't know anything. They would meet Christ, they would get saved, and he would say, okay, we're a church. Then he would try to train them up, disciple them up. And then once they got to a certain level, maybe he would bring Timothy in to be the pastor or he would try to raise up pastors. He would, he would create a church there and he'd say, here's a church. Paul just planted a church. And then he was a frontier church planner, meaning he wouldn't stay there and be the church planner till he died. He would start the church, appoint elders and pastors and say, y'all got it. And then he would go and he would come back and visit every once in a while. And the way he did life was he'd go from city to city to city to city to city until he died, until he was killed. He was a frontier church planner. And so <clears throat> what we're going to do, in, do today is kind of narrow in on one of these particular church plants that he did in the city of Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, um, he had planted a church. He had probably spent about six or seven years there. He had appointed some elders, and then he was about to have, this is, you know, the conversation where he's like, okay, here you are, and he's about to back out. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on the conversation that Paul has with the elders that have been appointed. So he's about to, it's all y'all. So the elders are there. He, Paul's having a conversation with the elders that are going to look over this church plant in Ephesus, and then he's going to go do some more church, frontier church planting. And we're going to zoom in and hear this last little conversation that Paul's having with the elders in Ephesus. Now, this is really key. Um, this is the last words to elders, and not everybody in this room is an elder. And, and maybe not everybody will ever be an elder. So you're thinking, well, if these are the words to elders, does it really apply to me? Absolutely it does. Listen, these words that he's given to elders are certainly huge, tangible takeaways that every Christian can, can say, I can do that, and therefore I can be an active member of advancing the church planting movement through evangelism in my city, in my church, and through this whole world. So we're going to see in this conversation words that he gives to the elders. But all these words are completely applicable to every single Christian. Very, very tangible takeaways that you can be doing in your life as a believer to advance the church planning strategy in our city, our church, in the world. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So why plant churches is because we, we want for people to meet Christ. We need to make huge strides in seeing the other half of our city meet Christ. That's why we need to plant churches. So I, I've titled it, Our City Needs. And when I say our city needs, I'm just going to say Christians that will something. And if you're in Christ, it's calling, it's, it's calling you out towards this. And so let's look at verse 17. Basically what's going on here is Paul was in the town of Miletus. And so he says, go get the, the elders in Ephesus, bring them here. So they come and they, and they meet there and they're having a conversation and they're going to go back to Ephesus and Paul is going to go to his next place. So in verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him in Miletus. And when they came to him, he said, and so here's the conversation right here, starting in the middle of 18. It says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, watch this, from the first day that I set foot in Asia. The first day. Well, the first day he set foot in Asia, how many Christians were there? None. So from the first day, what did he do? He went and lived among the sinners because he wanted to see people meet Christ. So Christians, our city, our city needs Christians that will go and live among them. Among them is the people that don't know Christ in the city. We must have people. We, we can't let our, ourselves as Christians say, 
They're the unbelievers. We're the believers. We're going to get in our little holy huddle, our bubble, and here we are. If we go over there, then I don't know what's going to happen. I, I, could, I could start doing all kinds of stuff. We have to be willing to, to go over there and live among them. Let our kids play with their kids and learn how to cuss from their kids. And just learn. That's a good gospel moment to bring our kids over and say, okay, you're not supposed to cuss. Um, and that's bad. Th- that word you said, I mean... When they come back, they say, Daddy, what does boop, boop, boop mean? Oh, my kid just said boop, boop, boop. I mean, I, ha- I know somebody that's done this, right? He's, he's, his little six-year-old came and said, Daddy, what does, I mean, awful word. And he's just like, my heart sank. My heart sank. And I'm just like, poor dude. I'm glad that wasn't me. And I'm like, no, wait. You know, so like I feel the conviction. My point is this. Um, we have to, if they're going to meet Christ, go live among them. I mean, this is the most incarnational thought ever. Jesus, in order to save us, came and lived among us. There is no other way. They will not get saved if we're in our place and they're in their place and we try to shoot like mind beams at them or something. That that doesn't save them. We need to go and we need to live among them. Now, that looks different for all of us. It may mean that you move into a certain neighborhood. It may mean that you just walk next door. But we must live among them. They must know that we love them by living there. So let me read a verse to you. This is a verse normally that I uh, will share with our, our community group leaders. I really, I really like this verse. Um, it's, it's a great verse for community group leaders to adopt in, in their little group of 12, 15 that they're trying to lead. But I also think this is a great verse for Christians to think, what would it look like if I'm going to go and live among people um, and, and save it? Let's just think of it this way. If someone said, I'm going to be a missionary to China. Oh, you are? Really? When do you leave? Well, I'm actually not leaving. I'm going to do it all via internet. (laughs) You're like, wait, aren't you supposed to go live in China? It's the same idea, you know? It's the same idea. You you can't just think that not living among them, that they're going to meet Christ. So let me read this verse to you. First Thessalonians, this is Paul talking about when he went to the, the city of Thessalonica. He said, so he's talking to them and he's saying, this is how I felt about you. So being so, being affectionately desirous of you. This is how he felt about these people. He was so affectionately desirous of them that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves because you had come so, become so dear to us. So when we came, we didn't come among you just for a minute, track bomb you and run away for six months and hope that you just read the tracks. We, we, we shared the gospel with you, but not only did we share the gospel with you, we were actually willing to share our very selves with you because you become so affectionately desirous to us because we loved you so dearly. So we did life with you. Our kids played together on the playground. You and I, we went out and I watched you play a really bad softball game or, or whatever it is, you know. We have to live among them. This is one of the first things that we need. Our city needs Christians to live among them. I I am absolutely certain if Christians did a much better job at living among other people that were not Christians, we would see a lot more church planters. Because out there in the harvest are the pastors. Out there in the harvest are the pastors. They just need to meet Jesus, be called to ministry, and plant their churches. And so if that's the case on this first one, what would it look like then for you to live among them? You specific, what would it look like for you to live among, as, as Paul said, from the first day I set foot in Asia, I lived among you. What would need to change in your life if you were actually going to live among people that don't know Christ? If there's a, if there's a big bubble around you if, you, if you can't name three people that don't know Christ, I'm just grabbing this, and this isn't like legalism, so don't, Freak out, okay? <laughs> if you can't name three people that, in your life that you're kind of doing life with on a week-to-week basis that don't know Christ, that's, I mean, I don't think we can handle more than three, really. But if you don't know three, that's something to at least pause and consider. Maybe I'm not living among them to the degree that I think I am. So let's keep going. Um, so... Paul appeals to these, and he's basically telling these, these guys, but of course to all people, to live among. And then he says, how I lived among you the whole time. I set foot in Asia, 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots 
of the Jews. So the Jews were coming after him, but Paul deeply loved him. And so he still served the Lord with humility and with tears and with trials. John Piper, looking at this particular text, is saying, what, what kind of tears are we talking about here? There's all kinds of tears. He says, tears can come from physical pain or from heart-rending loss or from unbearable frustrations and from discouragements and from intense yearning or even overwhelming joy. Which one is it? And it's like, yes, like it's all of them. Church planting causes these kinds of tears. I can, I can, like, I'm, I felt like I'm, I was manic depressive the first year. Like, I'm like really happy. And an, and an hour later, I'm like down in the dumps. And then the next hour, I'm really happy again. I'm like, what's going on with me? You know, um, but this is exactly how it's represent, representative of Christians. Whenever we're among them, we're going to feel this angst where we're saying, I'm serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that are happening. And I think that the tears is a big indicator of this. This is what I think the main point of what we can get out of the fact that Paul's saying that there's tears. Um, and it's our second one, that our city needs Christians that deeply care about him. He's, he's not crying because he stubbed his toe. He's, there's tears because he deeply cares. If there's any point I think that really kind of um, fits with that Romans 9 text that we were reading is this one. But here what we're seeing is that uh, Paul deeply cares for these people. Let me, let me read it a quote from Hudson Taylor to you um, to maybe highlight for us what we're talking about when it comes to the kind of deep care we're to have of them and why. This is what he says. Would that God make hell so real to the church that we could not rest? Make heaven so real that we must have men there and make Christ so real that our supreme motive and aim shall be to make people Make to these people Jesus the man of sorrows, now become the man of joy by the conversion of all these men. That's Hudson Taylor. That's what he's talking about. If we would pause and think hell is real, it's not some make believe place that we can just try to scare people, it's an actual real destination for people that don't know Christ, and it's forever. If hell were that real to us, and heaven, Heaven itself, were that supreme in our affections, I think that it would change the way and we would deeply, deeply care about people. Pastor J.D. Greer, I think this is, this is amazing. Um, was, was, I heard him say this uh, when he was talking about the, the book of Psalms in verse 126. Um, he was talking about our deep love for people, our affections, and literally talking about the, the word tears and what that might look like. And this is what he says. In, in Psalm 126, 4 through 6, it says this. Restore our fortunes, O God, like the streams in the Negeb. Um, back then, the streams in the, the Negeb, there could be a sometime where the Lord would just pour out floods and the, the streams in the Negeb would rise two and three feet and it was just floods everywhere. Water, replenishment of the earth everywhere. He says, he says Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negeb. And then verse 5 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping bears the seed for sowing shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Then J.D. Greer is looking at a commentator, and a commentator is saying, this is representational of how the Lord can choose to bring spiritual awakening to a place. He says in verse 4, the Lord can bring spiritual awakening by just throwing down the streams into the Jeb, pouring out the floods, and there's just an awakening everywhere. But there can also be, that's verse 4, verse 5, where that's not happening. And all we see is those who are sowing in tears. There is no rain. And so all there is is this hard, hard ground. And all I can do is sow in this hard ground my tears. And if this is all the water that can happen, God, this is all that I can produce. I'm going to literally take my tears and sow this gospel into this hard ground all the while saying, this that I'm doing right now is not mutually exclusive from what you can do, but if this is all that's going to happen for this time period, I will take my tears and I will shove them into this hard ground, let, begging the Lord, please send revival. Let my tears be enough that would bring this gospel seed up to. But all the while, Lord, I'm trusting and I'm praying and I'm asking, if these tears are enough, at any day, you can open up the heavens and send the floods down and flood this place and do more in one hour than I can do in 50 years. But I'm still going to be faithful 
and sowing in tears. And what he's saying is, if we're so deeply desirous for God to move, that we're asking for this, but we're praying for the floods. We're sowing in tears, but praying that God would send the floods. That's what it looks like, I think, to be so deeply desirous or really care about people that we are begging God to send the floods, but all the while on our knees, sowing in tears in the hard ground because it is hard work. But that happens whenever we really care about the people that we're living among. And so if we're going to live among them, we'll find our heart would start growing in love for them. We won't find our heart growing in love for them generally if we don't live among them first. So one and two go together. And so maybe an application question would be this. What needs to happen in your heart in order to begin caring either for the first time deeply for the unbelievers or perhaps more deeply for the unbelievers around you to where you're going to sow in tears but beg God for the floods in the Najeb? So our city needs Christians that would do this. Our city needs Christians that would really care deeply. Moving on, and I could spend time in all these, but it's probably not wise for me to do that. So um, verse 20, verse 20. And so we, we say, sowing in humility with tears and trials. Verse 20 says, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from the house to house. If you would just look down to verse 27, I think 20 and 27 are saying the same thing for us. And that's, that's going to be our, our third, third one. Yeah. He says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. In verse 27, he says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so, now listen, I know that this is towards pastors. I know Paul is telling the pastors and elders, don't shrink from telling people the word of God. If, if you're... Don't just try to figure out how to make people happy and make them all like you. Tell them the happy parts of the Bible and never ever, maybe the bad news or hit the, don't, stay away from those tough verses. Just preach, like he's saying, don't shrink back. Trust the Lord God. You get up there, you preach through the word and you just let the Lord do it. Don't fear man so much that you'll shrink back and not preach the whole counsel of God. Is basically what he's saying. And, and I know this is totally applicable to the pastors. I mean, that's the main meaning of this, is he's telling us to pastors. But I think this is still very ap- applicable to all of us. There will be times when the, the word itself will be tough to try to tell people. Because we know that they're going to find it offensive, maybe. And he's saying, don't shrink back. Our city, the third one, is our city needs Christians to, bol- to proclaim boldly the word of God. We need Christians that will proclaim boldly the word of God. And and it's not in the same sense as maybe a pastor would. But still, don't miss this, okay? If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, I have the Holy Spirit. And and it's no different. You have a Bible, and I have a Bible. So you can proclaim the the word of God just as easily as I can. I, I went to seminary, but that's it. That doesn't, you don't have to go to seminary to, to tell people the Bible. You just don't. Study the word and pro- proclaim it boldly. Let, let me just, and I've, I've said this quite a bit, but let me just uh, maybe for good measure um, rehearse with us all the power that the Bible has. Um, again, I've read this many times to us, but I want to I rehearse with you all just so we can remember again the power behind the Bible. So when we proclaim it to people, we can know that there's, there's some pretty amazing things that the Bible itself can do in the hearts of people. And we can trust that even though I fear you and I'm very nervous that when I tell this to you, you're going to hate me um, or get really mad at me or be offended by me, that the Bible itself, when proclaimed, can do a work on our human heart that it will soften under the proclamation of the word and that they'll be turned towards Christ. It can do this. Listen to this. This is 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 3, verse 14. Paul is talking to um, Timothy. He's a pastor in Ephesus, and he's saying, this is how I want you to trust the word, Timothy. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned, having firm belief, knowing from whom you've learned it. And here it is in 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's talking about the Bible, the Old Testament. He said, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. You know the Bible. And then he says this. The sacred writings are able to make you wise 
for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Which means if we would, if we would um, proclaim boldly the word of God, it is able to make people wise on how to be saved. The Bible will tell people how to meet Christ. Not only that, even more it tells us in, in verse 16 that all scripture, this is just, just referring back to the Bible saying all scripture is, is literally breathed out by God is the word here. That all the, all the scriptures breathed out by God into men and they wrote with their own personalities, but they wrote carried along by the Holy Spirit with their whatever academic measure they had, whether they were kind of unlearned or learned, they wrote and their Greek's clear that whether they were learned or unlearned, but still they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so since these are God's words, not just man's words, these words that are, that are God's words right here have a tremendous amount of power. And if people hear them, the Holy Spirit, as his words proclaim, comes behind it with power and shoves that word down deep in the heart. And look what it can do. It says here, all scriptures breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching people and for reproof and for correction. Not in a way that makes them angry, but in a way that softens their heart to Christ. And it says, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so this, this word is powerful. And as he says all this to Timothy, wow, look at the power of the word. And then he continues in 4, 1, and 2. And basically he says, since that's the case about the Bible then, Timothy, this is what I'm telling you. I'm going to charge you in front of everybody in verse 1 of all these people. And then verse 2 says, preach the word. Proclaim it. Since it has this amazing power, Timothy, preach it. And it's just absolutely applicable to us. Since it has all this power, trust that it has this power. And then take it and tell it to people. Now, let's be really clear about what we're saying. I want to make sure that, we, uh, that we're really clear. I'm going to quote Ke- Tim Keller here because what we're doing here when we say proclaim the word, we're not just proclaiming knowledge of the word as an end in of itself, meaning we don't want them just to know, you know, like Bible trivia, right? Who was Paul's companion? Where's the book of Lamentations? Right here. We're not after Bible trivia knowledge. So this is what he says. Um, so, but we do have to preach the Bible. We still have to do things. So this is what he says. It's key that they know the word. So we need, we need to proclaim the word so that they'll actually know the gospel of Christ and their hearts will be inflamed or moved towards Jesus and want to worship Jesus. He says, we must not preach the Bible in a general way, but we must preach the gospel. Yet, unless we preach the Bible in general, they won't grasp the gospel. The more we understand the whole corpus or the, the body of biblical doctrine, the more we will understand the gospel itself. So in our, in our proclamation of the Bible, we're warning them to see and know Christ, not just memorize knowledge. We're warning them as they hear things of the word to, to ascertain who Christ is and what he's done for us on the cross. And the good news that if we put our faith in Christ, we are... We are forgiven completely of our sin. And now, because of that, completely forgiven and set right, made a new man and able to walk in newness of life and live out the Christ life for us, walking and do good, doing good works. And so we want to make sure that as we preach, proclaim the word of God, every single one of us can do that. That we're leading them into doing, making them understand, they, they sh- making sure they know the gospel. All right, so um, let's keep going. Well, let me ask this question then. Let's ask this question. Um, what can you do in your family and in your community group, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, whatever? What can you do then, you personally, to make the word and the gospel more central in your life in the city of Rock Hill, in the city of Fort Mill, in the county of York? What can you do to make the, the word of God and the gospel more central? if it's not finding its proper place in our lives, then we're not going to have the advantages of seeing more people meet Christ than without it. We must have the word and we need every believer equipped with the spirit to proclaim it and make it a central place in your family, in your community groups, in your neighborhood, etc. And maybe you're doing that, but certainly there are things that we can also say, that's a good idea, I want to do that as well. So what can you do? All right, fourth one. Um, This one's just beautiful. So, teaching you in public, because I didn't shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public from house to house, verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, showing 
you know, I'm, whoever, I, well, listen. This is what I'm going to tell them. Testifying both the Jews and, and Greeks of, here it is, repentance towards God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this seems so obvious, but I think we have to say it in our day and age. Our city needs Christians that will verbally call people to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to eventually tell them, you have to trust Christ. You have to repent of your sin. Now, that might not happen overnight with someone. Maybe it will. Maybe it's that magic person. They just, you know, like the jailer. Tell me how to be saved. You know, knock on the door. Tell me how to be saved. Like I had it last week and I blew it. But anyway, um, we're going to have those moments. But they're, they're much, you know, they're few and far in between or whatever the phrase is. We have to make friendships with people and we can't just hope that our friendship will like one day when we're sitting across coffee and we're talking about roses or whatever it is that we talk about, that osmosis will just fly out of our heads into their heads and they're going to say, oh, faith and repentance in Jesus. Okay, I got it. Like there's going to have to be one day where the awkward moment happens and there's no around it. Like if they don't know Christ and you know Christ and they need to express faith and trust in Christ and repent of their sin, you have to tell them. You have to tell them. True love for them will compel you in the end to tell them. It's more loving to tell them than to not tell them. It's more loving to save their eternal souls than to make it a little bit awkward between the two of you. Right? And I know God saves. Um, so Christians must call them to faith, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So... Um, let me, let me get a, a good understanding here. I'm going to use a, a Keller illustration about what we mean when we're talking about faith and faith in what object and, and not faith in faith and some kind of big, just have big faith. But like, this is what he says. I think this is a great little story, uh, illustration, I should say, uh, that's helpful for us when we're talking about faith, what it is we're saying. This is what he says. Imagine two people bored on airplane. One person has almost no, fa- no faith in the plane or the crew and is filled with complete fears and doubts. And some of you who fly Delta, like, I, that's me, um, but not the name Delta. So anyway, back to the point. Back to the point. So we have people that, <laughs> we have people, one guy that has no faith whatsoever in the plane or the crew and it's filled with doubt and fears. We have the other person that's filled with great confidence in the plane and the crew. They both enter the plane, they fly to a destination, they get off the plane safely. One person had a hundred times more faith in the plane than the other, but they were both equally safe the whole time. It wasn't the amount of faith, but the object of their faith, the plane and the crew, that kept them from the suffering and harm and arriving safely in the destination. So it's not the amount of faith in faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. We are putting our faith, though it be small or great, whatever the Lord would grant us as, I think it's Romans 12, like verse 2 or 3 or 4 says, in Jesus, the object of our faith, he's the one that's going to save. So we trust him and that he died on the cross for us, his work or his death on the cross for us and our behalf, and he saves us. So when we're calling them to repentance and faith, we're not calling them to just have faith in faith or make it real big. We're saying, It's the object of our faith that saves us. Trust, repent of your sin and trust Jesus to save you because he's God and he's mighty to save. So that's what we mean when we say we're calling people to repentance and faith, to trust the only person that can save, Jesus. I mean, he is massive and even bigger than that and even bigger than we can conceive of. So we're saying trust Christ and what he's done on the cross by taking all the punishment that was rightly due for us onto him, and then all of his righteousness, his perfect life, is then given to us, all of our sin, debt put on him, and now the great exchange happens, and we are completely justified, completely innocent, completely holy, completely righteous because of that. Even though we still sin, God has declared us righteous. And if that's happened, you can't lose that. There's no losing salvation. God has said, all the punishment was put on my son. I'm not going to take it back one day and say you're halfway saved and halfway not saved now. You're all the way saved. And then we repent continually of the existing sin in our life. And Jesus makes us more holy, more holy, 
day by day. That's called sanctification. And that's a roller coaster. I, and that's not, we're not doing a sanctification sermon today. So um, let's, let's stay on church planning. So we have to. Our city needs, verse 21, Christians that will be bold and call people to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're like me, that is scary. Like, that's scary. That makes me nervous. Even in this cold room, I'm getting kind of hot and my, my palms get sweaty, right? It was free, more freezing in first service. Um, that makes me nervous and scared. What will make me do that? How, how will I find this kind of strength? How will I find rest in my mind and soul and not go crazy with anxiety for this? I think this fifth one will help us. This is what he says. And now, so he's having this conversation with the elders at, F, at Ephesus and he's saying, y'all gonna go and now this is what I'm gonna go do. And so let's just look at the, the mindset of Paul here when, in 23. 23? Yeah. He says, uh, no, 22, sorry. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained, compelled, convinced, or whatever word you want to say. I I know the Lord is compelling me by the Spirit to go do this. Compelled by the Spirit, look at this, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies me in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know the Spirit's leading me, and more than likely, suffering's coming, and I don't know what's going to happen. What's going on here, big picture, is this. Paul is completely trusting the sovereignty of God. He knows that the Spirit's calling him, and he's going to go, and whatever happens will happen, and I'm going to go. And I think that's exactly how we're going to proclaim boldly this gospel. Number five, our city needs Christians that trust the sovereignty of God. We trust the sovereignty of God, and wherever and however he's leading us. So we're going to pray big, huge Ephesians 3.20 prayers. prayers. God, whatever I can ask or imagine, that's what I'm going to ask. And whatever I ask and imagine, you can do exceedingly and abundantly more than that. But I don't even know how to say that. So I'm just going to say what I can and ask you to do whatever you can. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to sow in tears. I'm going to broadcast this gospel as as far as I can into this hard, hard ground and push it down and sow in tears and plead and beg for you to come all the while saying, Lord, if you want to pour out the floods in the Jeb, please bring it. Save everybody in 30 minutes in this city. But I will give my life for 30 years in this city if that doesn't happen. I will trust the sovereignty of God and pray like crazy that you will do it. Now, (laughs) these five things are very difficult. Very, very difficult because if you're like me, and maybe you're not, but if you're like me, I'm quite selfish. I'm quite selfish. And I don't feel like trusting in the sovereignty of God. I feel like trusting in the sovereignty of Fudd. And he likes to be safe. And he likes to keep his kids in the backyard where the fence is so they don't become crazy. Um, er, and he doesn't like for, um, he likes for things to be safe. He likes to play we. He likes to read and be by himself. He doesn't like to live among the people because they're crazy. And my, they might make me crazy or make my kids crazy. He doesn't like to care deeply about people. Some people are born this way, even as unbelievers. They're just naturally caring people. I'm not. And maybe, maybe you are. But I think all of us can say, it makes me nervous to proclaim boldly the word of God. It makes me nervous to call people to repentance and faith. And that idea, Fudd, I'm all for it, but I'm really, really wanting the person beside me and this side to do those things. And I'm going to get nervous about it and probably not do it. But Romans 9 says that we should have such a deep love and compelling heart for people that we are willing to go to great measures Our city needs these things. So how are you and how am I going to do it? How are we going to do it? I think that if we adopt the, obviously God, but humanly speaking, how are we going to do it? Verse 24 is our answer. This is a great verse. I don't know if you do life verses. Sometimes those are like life verses. Um, But listen, if you don't have a life verse, I invite you to adopt Acts 20.24 as an awesome life verse. This is such a good, this is the way I want to live my life, Acts 20, 24. Or Philippians 1, 21, but that's not the text today. So Acts 20, 24 says, 
How am I going to do those five things? How is it that our city is going to have these things? And I'm going to, as a Christian, participate in these things. And we're going to plant churches. And people are going to meet Jesus. And the rest of our city is going to get saved. How is that going to happen? Right here, verse 24. But I do not account of my life as any value nor as precious to myself. I am valuable and precious to God because he's declared me his. And now that he's adopted me and called me his own and brought me into the family and possesses me and owns me, I have value, I have dignity, I have worth because I'm made in the image of God. He saved me. So since I'm his possession, I have to go do what he says. But in and of itself, selfishly, I don't account of my life as value or precious to myself. But because God has said I am, therefore I have to do what he says, not what Fudd says. I do not account of my life as any value or precious to myself. If only, the only thing I want to do, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, your ministry is different than Paul's. You weren't blinded on the road to Damascus and you weren't called to be a frontier church planner 2,000 years ago to Gentiles. You're called to be a a part of making disciples in 2013 to Jews and Gentiles, probably mostly Gentiles. But it's no different. The same attitude and posture that Paul has here is no different for us. We are to account our life as not valuable to ourselves, but because God has said we are, we want to do what he says. Therefore, I want to finish my course and the ministry that was given to every single one of us in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Every single one of us has been given that ministry. So the way that you're going to accomplish these things is verse 24. The way that I'm not going to chicken out every day and accomplish these things is the same thing because of the attitude of saying, I'm Christ's. He bought me and I'm willing to do it. And so we need to plant more churches. We need a lot more churches. We need maybe a few more churches like this in the city, but we also need traditional churches. We need more African-American churches. We need more Hispanic churches. We need all kinds of churches in this city. And we want to, as Remedy, by God's grace, if the Lord would bring it, be on the forefront in this city of seeing that happen. And so, I would say, if the Lord has spoken to you in this, and maybe these particular five things you've read and you said, there's some things in my life that I need to, I need to think about. I, I don't want to live among them, or I don't want to talk about repentance and faith, or whatever it is. I don't trust the sovereignty of God. I trust the sovereignty of FUD or fill in your blank. I would just say during this time of, of, of worship and response, repent and confess and ask the Spirit to change your heart and give you the heart of Acts twenty twenty four. The greatest way to do evangelism in this particular time period is through church planning. And say, let, Lord, let it be. Let's see it. Let's see you do some amazing things in our city and start with me. I will sow with tears and pray for the floods and the jail, Lord, for this time that I have. So whatever the Lord's doing in your heart, I just ask that you be obedient to the leading of the Spirit. And then after that, let's just stand and worship our great God. Let's worship Him and give Him the glory and honor and praise that He would do these things, that He'd be so kind to even do these things in our heart because He's worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. I pray for us all right now. God, in my heart and maybe in every one of our hearts right now, we we just think about this and it just seems so huge and daunting and and scary. And we just say, Lord, that is is so big. I just don't know that I can get a part of that. I can't even wrap my mind around what it looks like. And, And perhaps all we need to do is just take a few steps back and start with something simple. Just start with something simple. Is the word of God and his gospel central in my life and in my family? I can get my mind around that. I can can start there. Do I know anybody that doesn't know Jesus? And am I trying to live a life with them? Am I having dinner with them? These 
These are things we can wrap our mind around, God. I pray that right now you would come by the Spirit and take away what seems to be a huge task and give us good, tangible takeaways and handles and, and good applications that we can start with right now on Sunday afternoon. And then we would just trust in the sovereignty of God, as Paul did. That you would constrain us and compel us by the Spirit to say, I don't know what awaits for me out there. Danger or not, but I'm going to go. Because I'm constrained by the Spirit to go. To do. To live among. To take the gospel. To trust the word. We're all at different places, Lord, and some of us are doing this and are going out of this city and going to other cities or going to other countries. I pray that all the while, Father, you would bless those works and cause us to continually ask for your provision of your spirit to lead us and guide us and never find ourselves um, to the place where we think we've arrived, but that we're always on mission. Be with us now as we think, pray, confess, maybe even repent and then stand and worship you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.